Know the past, shape the future. Welcome to the official podcast of the Air Force Historical Foundation. A quick programming note, we've divided the story into two parts. So make sure you subscribe now so you don't miss the second half. On this episode, we're talking to Dr. Jan Davis, author, astronaut, and engineer. Her new book, Airborne, Two Generations in Flight, happened after a chance encounter when she discovered her father's World War II POW journal. Her father, Ben Smotherman, was a B-17 pilot flying missions over Europe. But after 21 months, he was shot down July of 1943 in Holland and spent the rest of the war in Stalag Luft III. Like so many others, he never talked about it. But thankfully, the one time he did, he shared his journal with his daughter Jan. Jan's book not only tells her father's story, but it explores the connections between his experiences and her own as an astronaut on the space shuttle. Here now is Dr. Jan Davis. Well, it's interesting. I loved airplanes and I love to look at you know the sky and see planes. So I knew that I wanted to be a pilot someday, just like him. But uh, it, you know, I didn't really think about the space program because at that time, being an astronaut or, or being involved even in the space program wasn't an option for for girls or for women. Uh, so I didn't really think about that. Although I grew up during the time when we were going to the moon and when the space program was very active because of that. And, and I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama, where we were testing the engines and and you know the rockets that were going to the moon so i was fascinated with the space program but i didn't really dream about working on it i guess i i don't know <laughs> i didn't really uh have aspirations other than you know loving math and science and just wanted to do something with that you know it's interesting that the movie that i one of the movies that i love october sky there are no girls standing behind that makeshift launch platform that's that Homer and all those guys had set up. But but yet there you were, right there in Huntsville, Alabama, where all of this uh, was, was going on. Did you ever even think that someday you would have had this incredible NASA career that you that you've not only had, but as you pointed out, it's just a small part of your of your larger career, but but here you are as an astronaut, which is, uh, I, I can't even think of the percentile of people who have left Earth. I mean, it's it's staggering, the odds that you're Yeah, it's, it's, you know, around 500 people um, went to space. But uh, when I was growing up, of course, I was fascinated with the space program, like like everyone was in that era and, and landing on the moon. But by the time I was in high school, the space program was pretty much gone, you know, in the 70s, early 70s. After we went to the moon, there was only one one mission left. That was the Apollo Soyuz in 1975. So people were getting laid off all around me in Huntsville, Alabama. So, you know, I didn't, I didn't think that was an option. I thought, you know, we didn't have a space program or, or, or something like that that I could work in. 
it would it would have been marvelous if it had kept going at that point but we didn't really get going again until the space shuttle program which was after i already graduated from from college uh, so i'm glad i majored in engineering and was was able to transition into the space program but i didn't even go to work um and there, it was not a possibility when i graduated from college i i went to work in the petroleum industry that's where the jobs were we need to rewind a bit because there's an important piece to this story we haven't talked about yet in fact Jan's book might not have happened at all because of this. In the immediate years following World War II, it wasn't all roses. The 1930s, at the height of the Great Depression, America's divorce rate was 17%, according to the Centers for Disease Control, the folks who track all this stuff. But in the 1940s, after the war, the divorce rate in America nearly doubled. It jumped to 28%. Jan's family, like so many others, faced this head on. What did your dad think about all of this early on? What did he think you were going to become? Did he ever say? Um, no. Um, and, and by the way, I didn't grow up with my, my father, who was a pilot, a B-17 pilot, because my parents divorced when I was four. Uh, and my mother remarried Davis, which is why I have that name. But uh, I kept in touch with my father, and he was elated that I that I went into engineering and that I liked math and science because that's what he studied when he was you know, before he was sent off to the war. He was studying engineering, and uh, and he was a draftsman. I mean, that's what he did to earn money to go to school uh, and to pay for flying lessons. And so he was just really excited that that I was studying engineering. And he was very forward thinking about it. You know, he said, not many women go into engineering. And so that's fantastic that you want to do that. And you have that uh, ability, um, you know, to be an engineer and to, to like uh, working with people and, and teamwork and all of those things that, that engineering requires. So he was very excited about that. And then Marshall changed everything. 1979, here you are. Mm-hmm. Right. A young aerospace engineer, and boom, this job falls in your lap, <laughs> so to speak. Talk to me about that, yeah. because what, I mean, that's incredible that uh, that you get picked up for this. Yes, Um as I said, in the 70s, uh, NASA wasn't hiring. People were getting laid off. Nobody was majoring in aerospace engineering. I majored in mechanical engineering and went to work in the oil industry. And uh, then all of a sudden, uh, and that's where I was working when I applied to go to work for NASA in Huntsville as an engineer. And that's when they started hiring again, getting ready for space shuttle. Because the first space shuttle flight was in 1981, and so they were looking for people to work on the space shuttle program and the things that were going to fly on the space shuttle. So that was incredible to me. I, I moved back to Huntsville. I'd been living in Houston, working in the oil industry. Moved back to Huntsville, my hometown. Went to work for NASA, and they hadn't hired new people in about 10 years. So I was one of the first young people the younger person there and and uh, female so it was it was really interesting 
I uh, went to work with people who had worked in the Apollo program and learned from them. So that was pretty exciting to uh, to be home, to be at NASA, and to be working with people that um, sent us to the moon. So what was the culture like? Let's dive into this a little bit. You sort of touched on it. You said it was a little interesting. <laughs> so what's it like? I mean, you walk in day one. What's it like at NASA back then? Well, um, everyone was was super passionate about what they did, but they kept talking about the good old days, you know, and I said, I would tell them, I said, you know, these are the good old days for me. And then, you know, hopefully made them realize that getting ready for a new program, the space shuttle program was, uh, was an opportunity and something we should all be positive about and forward looking about and not just look backwards at Apollo, certainly learn from Apollo, but not, um, you know, dwell on it. So that was one thing. The other thing was uh, being a young female engineer, which none of them were, were used to, they, uh, I think they were a little skeptical as to whether I could do the work. And so the the only thing I remember about that is that I felt like I had to prove that I could do the work. And once I proved that I could do the work, they were super supportive. They were very encouraging they gave me all kinds of opportunities but i i do believe they were a little skeptical at first and certainly there was there was no discrimination or you know anything like that about being female so that was really good i was concerned about that uh the culture was very supportive and very encouraging uh, a learning environment um, they were very eager to teach me you know things that i needed to learn to do my job i was working on the hubble space telescope and the structures part of the hubble space telescope you know making sure it didn't break when when it launched that's what i was responsible for so it was just a fascinating project to be working on and and everyone was very encouraging and i had great opportunities great exposure and um, wonderful supervisors. So it was a very supportive environment, uh, but I do feel like I had to prove that I could do the work first. I've got I've to ask, because I can just imagine mm-hmm. what that must have been like for a young lady, brilliant, working on the Hubble Space Telescope at this point, what it was like on a Friday night when you went out. Because... <laughs> What do you talk about? I mean, how do you relate to the folks that are, you know, going out on a Friday night too? What, what, how does that work? Well, I was eager to talk about Hubble Space Telescope because, you know, at that time we were building it and people didn't know that much about it. And I would talk to anybody who was listening, you know, somebody on an airplane or, you know, out to dinner or whatever. I wanted to talk about the Hubble and what it would do and what its capabilities were. And uh, so that was that was the fun part. Because people, you know, in Huntsville were very interested in that kind of thing. And so um, it, w- it was really fun for me to talk about it because I, I had a we had a great team working on on the project. And as I said, I had great opportunities. I traveled places where they were building the telescope and and saw the hardware and saw it being tested. And so for me, you know, a 20-something engineer, year-old engineer, I was uh, just so excited to have that opportunity. And as I said, they, um, 
they let me, you know, give presentations at big meetings and, you know, travel and, and interact with uh, people who were building the telescope. And it was um, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me. Let's talk about risk. As an engineer, when you're building something as monumental as the Hubble Space Telescope and later uh, the Chandra Observatory project that you worked on, mm -hmm. how overpowering is that element of risk when you're working on something like this? Yes, it um, it it really is um, on your mind the, you know, while you're working on it because. Uh, when we were when we were building the Hubble, and I was working on on the graphite epoxy portions, the composite materials that were not metal, and back in the you know the, the late seventies, early eighties, it was kind of unusual to use those materials, and so we were having a lot of problems with them. And we fortunately did a lot of testing on the structural part, and and a lot of it broke. You know, and so we had to replace those those graphite epoxy parts with titanium. And so, you know, our job was to not only make sure that it that the whole structure of the telescope didn't break during launch, but also when it was all in orbit to um, to maintain alignment between uh, the instruments and and the image that was coming in. And so the structure had to <laughs> had to be strong but also um, not expand and contract with the thermal changes as it orbited so that was a tremendous responsibility and one of course there was a lot of scrutiny um, from from the instrument people they wanted to make sure their instruments you know we get the the uh, the right alignment and that sort of thing it's unfortunate that the optic part optics part uh, was the part that wasn't tested to the full, to the point where they could verify they had the right um, optics and um, so that's that's unfortunate but the structural part that I worked on uh, and those other people who worked on that that worked really well and um, so you know that's that's the risk is, is part of it but we did everything we could to uh, you know, make sure that it worked from a structure standpoint. I'll also add that during that time, I was um, assigned the the uh, latch fittings that attach the science instruments to the telescope, and those fittings are what the astronauts use to take the the instruments in and out to replace them. So on orbit, they would take the the instruments out, put a new instrument in. And uh, so I was responsible for those fittings. And uh, that way, I was able to swim in the water tank that they had at Marshall Space Flight Center with the astronauts. Because the astronauts, you know, train underwater because it's the closest thing to floating in space. And so I was able to be a diver and work with them on these latches and the design and made sure it was, you know, compatible with the way they wanted to operate taking the instruments in and out and so that's the first time I really met astronauts and um, was able to interact with them so that was another big bonus of working on the the Hubble Space Telescope program. As Jan's career was speeding along with Hubble so was the space shuttle program and then on January 28th 1986 
things changed. At NASA, at Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, whenever there was a launch, we would all go in the conference room and and uh, watch the launch. And uh, it was it was just uh, silence, you know, because the people at Marshall that I worked with uh, worked in the propulsion area. That's what Marshall Space Flight Center is responsible for. So they knew that it was probably something in one of the elements that that Marshall. Uh, managed whether it was external take or the engines or the boosters and so it was just silence as we walked out of the room just devastated and uh, my mother called me right after the accident and asked if I still wanted to be an astronaut you know there's risk in everything we do and this is something I believe is worth the risk and I still want to be an astronaut. So uh, later in the day, we all were assigned things to start looking at, data to start looking at, or um, things to do. And um, we, we just were working feverishly because we wanted to find out what happened. Uh, of course, it, it was not long before we knew that it was the boosters. And um, it was a little bit later that I was assigned to work um, on the redesign of part of the booster, the external attach ring, which attaches the uh, booster to the external tank, and we were redesigning it so to make it structurally uh, better during launch. It, there was no problem with it really that affected the, the accident, but uh, nevertheless, we redesigned a lot of the booster after the accident just to make it better. So the culture at the time was, um, you know, we all we all were just working. Oh gosh, <laughs> round the clock and nights, weekends, whatever, to um, to uh, make sure that that this didn't happen again. And you know, we were I was briefing review committees, and um, I had a team of people working with me on the redesign. One was from another. NASA Center, so it was just um, incredible dedication and um, and you know, determination to, to make sure that, that we redesigned this booster so that this wouldn't happen again. Let's talk about 1987. A lot changed in 1987. You got this call. How does that call work? Is it like you know, is it this big, incredible call? You get you get brought into an office. How does that work when they say, "Hey, you're going to be an astronaut"? As I said, I interviewed in 1984, and I didn't get selected. So I got that call that I had not been selected, and uh, basically, the selection board uh, is made up of different NASA managers and is headed by a man named George Abbey who was head of the selection board. And so if if George Abbey called you, you knew you had been selected. If anybody else on the board called you, you knew you hadn't been selected. So uh, I was called by someone else on the board back in 1984, so I knew I hadn't been selected. And in 1987, when I interviewed, uh, you know, I was out of town. I was on my way to a conference in Canada. And when I landed in Canada, 
everyone said, well, NASA's been trying to call you. This man named George Abbey's been trying to call you. <laughs> so I knew, I, I was pretty sure I had been selected at that point. So I was all excited and everybody around me was happy and uh, called my parents, all this stuff. And I uh, asked one of my friends there to sit with me when I called George Abbey back the next morning. And uh, so that's that's how it happened. And this is before cell phones. I mean, just uh, and I, I, I hate that I even have to bring this up. But I mean, just like does George Abbey leave a voicemail on your your old answering machine? I doubt it. I mean, there's just sort of this uh, this grapevine that starts rattling. And then, yeah. you know, yeah, because uh, people didn't know how to get in touch with me. I mean, somehow they found where I was staying up in Canada and they, they left a message to call him and his phone number and all that. So that's what I did the next morning. Um, I was trying to remain calm and collected when I called him and he was, it was funny because he was saying, well, what's the weather like in Canada? You know, this was in August. Of <laughs> He's just stringing you along. He's really stringing me along. And then I was like, okay, uh, you know, I was trying to be calm and wonder if this really was the call I was expecting or or what. And then he said, uh, well, are you still interested in being an astronaut? <laughs> I was like, yes, absolutely. And then we started talking about that, you know, the mechanics of that. And um, I still, again, remained calm through the conversation. And then as soon as I hung up, I was with my friend and she and I were hugging and screaming and... <laughs> Very excited. Six hundred and seventy hours in space as a mission specialist. Hard to believe, isn't it? I mean, six hundred and seventy yeah. hours when you start adding all that up into the nineties, and and then you flew with some of the greats. I mean, some of the greatest aviators that are still alive. I'm thinking Hoot Gibson and all of these phenomenal individuals that you got to be around. What stands out about that time in NASA with you and all of these missions that you got to fly? Well, um, it was an incredible experience and it does seem like a dream sometimes. It was 28 days in space over the three missions. And um, I just can't believe it sometimes but what really stood out to me during that time that the 10 years i was training and flying in space as an astronaut was the incredible teamwork around the world that made it possible now the astronauts get the attention and and the visibility because they're flying in space but the number of people required to not only build the vehicle operate the vehicle, build the, the payload, which is whatever we fly on the shuttle, the experiments, you know, the robot arm, the, uh, the training, the, uh, you know, the mission control. I mean, the whole thing was thousands and thousands of people. And these people were, were just so dedicated and so um, enthusiastic to make sure that uh, you know, we were ready to fly, the vehicle was ready to fly, whatever experiments or whatever we were doing uh, was ready to fly. 
And uh, that's that's the thing that struck me was the, the amount of teamwork and coordination around the world because all three of my missions were international in nature and, and the uh, people I flew with as well as some of the hardware and the experiments. Um, and so I would go to these countries and, and the same dedication. Um, it was very unifying. I mean, if you think about how many things really unify the world towards one common goal, space is, is that. And, and flying in space and operating a space vehicle. Now we have the International Space Station. Uh, is It's very unifying. And so that was just uh, heartwarming to me to see that. And, and something I'll never forget, the, the dedication and teamwork it took to, to put one of my missions together. change gears here and talk about introspection okay. just a little bit because you said something when we started this that just you know I, I mean and I deliberately we didn't talk about this but your father um and you were estranged I mean early on in life uh, due to divorce and I know so many people can relate to that uh, and I'm a you know comes back from the war do you know anything about his wartime experience as a child well, he never really talked about it. You know, as a child, I knew he flew in the war, flew airplanes. And in fact, when I was, was I was, uh, you know, four or five years old, every time I would see an airplane in the sky, I thought he was flying it because he stayed in the Air Force and, and kept flying airplanes in addition to working in the missile program for the Air Force. But, uh, you know, I, I thought that was him flying. So I thought he was flying all the time but um and i knew about the war you know growing up kids know about the war my mother of course was very traumatized by him being in combat being shot down being a prisoner of war for 21 months and uh, she was a young bride when he went off to training and uh she was i think 19 when he was a pow and uh you know for a month or so she didn't know if he was alive or dead. And so the war was a very painful experience for her, like many in our country. I mean, the whole country pulled together and, and um, you know, supported the war. Um, and so she she wouldn't talk about it. She she wouldn't let my, my brother play with toy soldiers or, you know, anything else that had anything to do with the war. Um, and, you know, I, I don't remember either my mother or my father talking uh, about the trauma or uh, certainly he didn't talk about anything he went through. And uh, she talked about, you know, being, being home and being, uh, you know, working and going to school and that kind of thing, but not the negative part of it, not the trauma uh, that they both went through that really i think they wanted to protect me from that but they just didn't talk about it well and clearly they did i mean you're yeah you're not a person that is risk averse i mean look at what you've done but <laughs> at some point and i this is what i'm so fascinated about because at some point later in life this this light goes off and this this quest 
for learning about your father's wartime service comes in and I'm, and I'm guessing there was a discovery at some point of his of his logbooks of his mission logs how did that go right yes um you know the times that that i visited him uh as i was growing up one time i believe it was when i was in houston working in the oil industry i went up to see him he lived in fort worth texas he had already retired by then and he showed his logbook from being a pow and it for um for people who were interred at Stalag Liv 3, which was a German Luftwaffe prison for the uh, Allied forces officers who were shot down or bailed out or recovered, um, they were treated pretty well. The Luftwaffe treated our prisoners pretty well and, and we treated their prisoners pretty well. It was a kind of an agreement, you know, with the air forces. Um, and so the YMCA and the Red Cross gave the prisoners a, a blank journal, basically a bound journal. And they gave them uh, pencils and watercolors and things to, to do art in these journals. My father's hobby was art and uh, drawing cartoons. And, uh, and he, he wrote really well. As I said, he was a draftsman, so he, he could draw thing so his logbook uh his pow logbook was just full of watercolor paintings of him being shot down of the other prisoners uh the camp and and also pencil drawings and um color pencil drawings of all the different airplanes that were in the war uh, and then he wrote a whole journal about what happened not not everything because you know it was censored so he could he could write about certain things like how to cook the food and you know things like that everyday life sports they did anyway he he had this journal that he kept it's called a wartime log is the, the title that's on the printed on all the blank blank books he showed that to me when i visited him in fort worth and and that is the only time he ever talked about the war or being a POW or, you know, he would turn each page and he would relate to me what was going on because it was kind of a, a, a visual picture of what prison life was like and what being shot down was like. And uh, so that was just really eye-opening. So I knew about this, this uh, wartime log. He passed just before my first uh, space mission, and I always wondered what happened to this to this log. And um, thank goodness for for social uh, media like Facebook. I, I looked up my my sister's name. She was the oldest from his second marriage, and she has an unusual name. You know, his last name was Smotherman, and so I thought, well, maybe maybe she's on Facebook. So I. I found her and I said, you know, if you ever have the time to scan this this wartime log, I would love to uh, have a copy of it. And, you know, if time goes on, we're all busy. Uh, it was several years later before she uh, was able to scan it because it's, you know, it's like 120 pages. And uh, in April of 2020, during COVID, she sent it to me. and there i saw it again and discovered that i really needed to tell his story 
and that's why I had the inspiration to write the book. So I had I had three things to start with. I had his flight records, which she also sent me, which was great because I could see where he was stationed and what airplanes he flew. Uh, I had the journal that he had written a journal uh, to my mother every day that he was overseas until he was shot down. So I have from the time he flew over there to England in 1943, May of 43, till the time he was shot down in late July of 43. And then I, now I had this uh, wartime log. So that's what I started with and, um, and, and just digging, uh, doing research about you know, life at Starlock Blue 3, life in the war, life in combat, the training, the airplanes, all of that. So I had to do a lot of research, but that's what started it was when he showed that wartime log to me and, and later my sister thankfully sent that to me. Coming up on our next episode, we'll learn more of that story. One that Dr. Jan Davis learned during her final visit with her father just days before he died and just weeks before her first flight to space. We'll also find out what she's doing now and how her father's story and her own is helping educate and inspire the next generation of potential scientists and space explorers. In the meantime, you can purchase Airborne, Two Generations in Flight from BallastBooks.com. If you order directly from their website, Jan will gladly personalize your copy. Until next time, know the past, shape the future.